and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we count it one of our greatest privileges, if not our greatest privilege in life, to be able to receive your word with your people, to hear from you as you speak to us through your word. And Father, we acknowledge that in your word, you, you show us your law, you show us um, what you require of us, and you show us in the law your holiness and your righteousness and your just, justice and your beauty and your wisdom and your goodness. And Father, you also show us in your word the gospel, the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us so that we would be redeemed. What he did in his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection and ascension. And so, Father, we pray that this morning as we look at your word, we would come to a better understanding of your law and of your gospel, that we would rejoice in it together, and that, Father, you, by the power of your spirit, would be exalted here in our midst this morning. We ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, it is my privilege to announce to you all this morning that uh, we are beginning, starting today and over the course of the next 13 weeks, a, a study, a brief study, I'll, I'll tell you, um, through the book of Psalms. There's 150 Psalms in the entire book, so there's no way we're going to cover all of those over the course of 13 weeks, but we're going to do a, a selection of the Psalms over the ne- these next 13 weeks. And uh, if you've been attending Sovereign Grace for a while, you know that typically what we do is we take one giant book of the Bible and we work our way through it. Um, historically, it takes us a couple of years. We've done that through the book of Romans. We're currently doing that through the book of Luke. And historically, what we've done as a church is we've taken a break every summer in hopes to expose you to some new book of the Bible, not that it's recently discovered, but some book of the Bible that may be new to you, that you may not be very familiar with, or some new um, literary genre of scripture that you haven't been exposed to. And so in preparation for this summer, we as your pastors got together and said, well, what do we want to expose our people to? What do we want them to to sit under? We want to sit with them under God's word and learn from him and from his word. And what we decided on was we want to expose you to the book of Psalms. And we really want to do that for two reasons. First of all, because we as a church haven't spent much time in the book of Psalms together. Um, Chad and I were talking, we think maybe we've come close to preaching to through, to, uh, through two different psalms. But other than that, um, we haven't exposed you much to it. Um, and the second reason is because the book of Psalms is a very important book of the Bible. Throughout the ages, um, if you look at church history, you just do a brief survey, what you'll find is that the book of Psalms has always been at the very center of the church's life and practice. For example, if you look back to St. Benedict, who founded the, uh, the Benedictine order of monks, he made it a requirement, now listen to this, that every week, every week, every single monk either sang or heard read or recited all 150 psalms every single week. Every week. Or take John Calvin, for example. When he was reforming the church in Geneva, he had all the psalms put to music, 
And then every Sunday, his church would sing a few of those psalms so that the, the, over the course of a year, his congregation sang all 150 psalms twice a year. Twice a year. Or you can also look at the Anglican Book of Common Order. They have, if you look at how they set up their reading of the Psalms, they've structured it in such a way so that you read through all 150 Psalms every single month. Now, that's just a a few historical examples, and I could give you numerous more, but the point is clear. When you look at church history, what you find is that the church has always treasured the Psalms, and, and they wanted their people to know the Psalms. And so the Psalms have always been central to the life and practice of the church. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves is, is why? Why has the church so valued the Psalms like it has? And here's the answer. The book of Psalms has been so highly valued by the church because in it, we are shown how to worship the real God in the midst of real life. We're shown how to worship the real God in the midst of of real life. Now, why is that so important? Why is it so important that we know how to worship the real God in the midst of real life? Well, here's why. Because I don't care how zealous you are. I don't care how passionate you are. I don't care how devout you are. If your worship of God is not tethered to his word, is not informed by his word at every turn, you will end up worshiping a God that you've created in your own image. You will create and then worship a false god. That's how sick and twisted our hearts are. And so that's why God has given us his word. Because in his word, he shows us who he is. He reveals himself to us. And so that's why he's given us the book of Psalms. That we might worship him, the real God, and not a god of our imagination. So that's one reason why the church has valued the book of Psalms, but there's another reason too. And the other reason is because in the book of Psalms, we're shown a picture of what it's like to live real life, what real life is like in a fallen world, a fallen world in which we experience the goodness of God and joy and forgiveness and deliverance, but also a world in which we experience suffering and sin and sickness and loss, and eventually one day death. So you see, on the one hand, the book of Psalms doesn't encourage us to approach life like it's going to be a fairy tale. But on the other hand, it also doesn't encourage us to approach life like it's going to be nothing but doom and gloom. Instead, it wisely shows us life as it truly is, full of ups and downs, joys and sorrows, gains and losses, life and death. Because that's how real life is, isn't it? It's a mixture of the two. And so what the Psalms show us is how to worship the real God in the midst of this very real life. So here's what we're going to be doing over the next 13 weeks. We're going to learn together how to sing to God in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in this life. Because that's what the Psalms are. They're songs that we've been given to sing in worship of God as we experience all the emotions of living life in a fallen world. Perhaps no one explained this better than John Calvin when he wrote that in the Psalms we have an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there is not a single emotion 
of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. In other words, whatever you're going through this morning, whatever your emotional state right at this moment, that emotional experience is somewhere in the Psalms. And so my encouragement to you is to read the Psalms until you find your voice, until you find a Psalm that as in a mirror reflects what you're going through. And then take that Psalm and sing it to the Lord. Scream it at the top of your lungs to the Lord and worship him in the midst of whatever it is that you're going through. That's why we're embarking on a study of the Psalms together to know how to worship God. And I can't think of a better place to start our study this morning than Psalm chapter 1. And here's why I say that. Psalm chapter 1 is an introduction and has always served as an introduction to the entire book, to the entire Psalter. It's, It's like a gateway to the entire book. And since it's a gateway, if we don't get Psalm 1 right... If we don't understand it correctly, then we won't understand any of the other psalms either. So we've got to get this chapter right, or else we'll misunderstand the rest of the book. And so in order to help us to come to that correct understanding, I want us to see three ways, three ways or paths that Psalm 1 lays before us. Three ways that Psalm 1 lays before us. We'll look at the happy way, the wicked way, and the only way. So first, let's look at the happy way, the happy way. Look at Psalm uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 with me again. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now, I want to remind you that the book of Psalms is a book of songs. And so over the next 13 weeks, we're going to be looking at 13 different songs in this book. And what I've decided to call this sermon is the Song of the Happy. And the reason I've called it that is because I think it perfectly captures what Psalm 1 is all about. Let me show you what I mean by that. Take a look at the very first word in verse 1. It's the word blessed. Blessed is the man. And what you need to know about that word is that almost every commentator I read and every sermon I listened to agreed that this Hebrew word could accurately be translated as happy. Happy is the man. But what's interesting is that if you look at almost every English translation out there, I tried to do that this week, none of them, almost none of them, translate this word as happy. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, is why? I mean, if, if happy is a faithful translation of this word, then why does almost no one use it? Well, the answer to that, I think, is a fairly easy one. The word is rarely translated happy because defining happiness is no easy task. I mean, if you randomly asked 100 people on the street to define happiness for you, what you'd most likely get is 100 different definitions of happiness. And so the translators don't want people to approach this text with all the baggage about what they think happiness is. And trust me, there's a lot of baggage. 
For example, I don't know how much you guys keep up with uh, pop culture, but there is a very popular song out right now that's called Happy. You guys heard of the song Happy? Some people are smiling, so I know you've heard it. Um, it, is, it is a very popular song. It's currently the eighth most downloaded song on iTunes as of yesterday. And it's a, it's a very catchy tune. If you've heard it, you already know that. But if you actually listen to the words, listen to the lyrics, they're extremely disturbing. They're extremely disturbing if you care about the truth. And here's why. Listen to the chorus. Because I'm happy. Clap along. If you feel like a room without a roof. Now, a room without a roof sounds like a really bad idea to me. But um, what he's saying is, I've got this elevated emotional state. And so I know I'm happy. Because I'm happy. Clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth. Okay, well, now I'm a little confused. The truth is happiness and happiness is the truth? Well, I haven't figured out what happiness is yet. So that doesn't really help me. So he goes on to say, because I'm happy, clap along if you know what happiness is to you. So you just got to define happiness. It's whatever you want it to be. Because I'm happy, clap along if you feel like that's what you want to do. Now, I don't know if I could find a better song that sums up our culture than that. But you can see why I think it's so disturbing, right? Because happiness is whatever you want it to be. There's no one definition according to this song. Whatever makes you feel like a room without a roof, that's the, that's the truth of what happiness is for you, and you need to live in accordance with that. So what this song is saying is that there are as many definitions of happiness as there are people. Now, my goal here isn't to ruin this song for you. If you like it, go ahead and continue to listen to it. I think that's great. I'm just trying to point out to you how dangerous this way of thinking actually is. And yet, sadly, this is the way most people, both inside and outside the church, think about happiness. They think happiness is whatever you want it to be. So I understand why the translators typically shy away from translating this word as happy because there's so much confusion about what happiness actually is. But you see, what I love about Psalm 1 is that it goes on to define happiness for us. And since Psalm 1 is the word of God, what we actually have here is God's definition of happiness. In other words, the only definition of happiness that's actually valid. So how does God define happiness? Well, in these three verses, God shows us three truths that define the happy person. Three truths that define the happy person. You guys ready for them? Here they are. First, in verse one, God says, happy is the person who in no way, shape, or form participates in sin. He doesn't listen to the counsel that sinful men give. He doesn't live his life the way sinful men live their lives. And he doesn't scoff at God's word the way sinful men scoff at God's word. In other words, the happy person perfectly abstains from every form of evil. They have absolutely no participation with sin. They never have and they never will. They are blameless, spotless, pure in regards to wickedness. So you get the picture? The happy person is perfectly sinless. Secondly, in verse 2, God says, happy is the person who delights in my law, who delights in my words, who delights in my counsel. 
As a matter of fact, he loves God's word so much that it's his constant meditation. He thinks about it in the morning, he thinks about it in the evening, and he thinks about it all day long. He reads it, he memorizes it, he prays it, he talks about it with others, and he delights to live all of his life, every aspect of his life, in light of it. Why? Because God's word is his delight. Happy is the man who hangs on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and obeys it. So you get in the picture? The happy person perfectly loves God's law, perfectly meditates on God's law, and perfectly obeys God's law. And thirdly, in verse 3, God says the happy person is like a tree that's planted by streams of water. They bear fruit at harvest time. Their leaf is always green. And whatever they put their hand to, they prosper. Now, I want us to slow down a little bit here. Because the psalmist is painting a word picture for us. And anytime scripture gives us a word picture, um, we are well served and it's always profitable by, by just allowing yourself to sit in it for a little while. So here's the picture. The happy person is like a big solid, healthy tree. So, so think in your mind of the, the biggest, most beautiful tree that you've ever seen. And you see it in your head? Well, that's what the happy person is like. But there's something else you need to know about this tree. The psalmist tells us that this tree didn't just grow there by chance. It, it, it started, uh, it didn't start as a little seed that just happened to fall where it's now taken root. No, this tree was strategically planted. It's not a wild tree. It was intentionally planted by a gardener. And where did the gardener plant it? He planted it right next to an irrigation canal, right next to an artificial water source that will never, ever, ever run dry. So that even when the rains don't fall, this tree has a source of life-giving water. Why? Because its water source is above nature. It's supernatural. It's not a natural water source. And so what does this tree do? It digs down its, deep, its roots deep into the life-giving streams. And as a result, it's a healthy tree. It's a fruitful tree. It's a prosperous tree. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? But here's a question we have to ask. Why does the psalmist use all this imagery? What does all this imagery mean? Well, it means that the happy person has been chosen by God to be given spiritual life. Because if you read through the Bible, what you'll find is that streams of living water almost always symbolize the Holy Spirit and the spiritual life that he gives. And so what this word picture is telling us is that the happy person has abundant spiritual life because they have the Holy Spirit without measure. They have the Holy Spirit without measure. Just like the tree has life because of the streams, the happy person has spiritual life because of the Holy Spirit. And since they love God and they love his word, the roots of their life are sunk down deep into the scriptures. And as a result of that, they are stable and mature and are consistently bearing spiritual fruit in their lives. So that's what the 
happy person is like. And that's what life looks like when you walk down the happy way. You perfectly abstain from sin. You love, you perfectly love and obey God's law. And you have access to the Holy Spirit without measure. But unfortunately, that's not the only way, is it? The psalmist also describes for us another way. And it's, it's not a pretty picture, but let's take a look at it. It's the wicked way. The wicked way. Look at verses four through six with me. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So the first thing we notice about the wicked way is that it's the polar opposite of the happy way. I mean, look at verse four. It's so emphatic. The wicked are not so. In other words, whatever you could say about the happy person, you have to say the exact opposite about the wicked person. So for example, the happy person doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, but the wicked person does. The happy person doesn't stand in the way of sinners, but the wicked person does. The happy person doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers, but the wicked person does. The happy person does delight in the law of the Lord, but the wicked person doesn't. The happy person does delight in God's law day and night, but the wicked person doesn't. So you see, these two ways are our polar opposites. They never head in the same direction, and they never meet up at some point. Instead, they are antithetical and opposed to each other at every turn. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves is, why the difference? I mean, how can we account for the stark differences between the happy way and the wicked way? We see the answer lies in the difference between how they respond to God's word. That's the key. So, so how do the happy respond to God's word? Verse 2, they delight in it. They meditate on it day and night. They love it. Okay, what about the wicked? How do they respond to God's word? Verse 1, they mock it. They disdain it. They prefer man's word to God's word. But you know what? Let's go even deeper than that. Let's, let's ask the question, what's going on at the level of the heart that's causing that response? Well, the Bible's answer to that question is abundantly clear. It doesn't flinch in this answer. It says, Romans, in Romans 8, 5 through 8, it says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So you see, there's the answer. The happy live according to the spirit, but the wicked live according to the flesh. That's the difference between these two ways. It's the difference between a heart that's alive to God by his spirit and a heart that's dead to God in the flesh. Now, I wish I could say that that's where the differences end, but I can't because they don't. You see, the psalmist goes on to explain that God is going to come and judge between the happy and the wicked. And when God comes to judge, the righteous will remain standing, but the wicked will be driven away. Now, why will the righteous remain standing after God's judgment? Well, 
because they're like a deep-rooted tree. And so when the judgment of God blows upon them like a strong wind, their deep roots keep them firmly planted. They can withstand the winds of God's judgment because they are perfectly righteous. But what about the wicked? What happens to them? Verse 4 tells us they will be driven away like chaff. Now, do you guys know what chaff is? Just in case you don't, let me briefly explain. When grain is harvested, it has this, this, gra- this dry, hard outer shell that's surrounding it. And that outer shell is, is called um, chaff. And chaff is useless, has absolutely no value. And so it needs to be separated from the useful part of the grain and then thrown away. And so what farmers do when they they winnow or thresh the grain is they throw it up in the air and then beat it until the chaff flakes off and blows away. And what the psalmist is saying is that's what the wicked are like. They are like lifeless, rootless, useless chaff that just needs to be thrown away. And so when God comes in judgment... They will not stand. They will be judged for their sins and then punished for all eternity under the wrath of Almighty God. That is what awaits the wicked. And if that doesn't terrify you, leave you trembling, it should. It's meant to leave you in that state. And do you know why? Because who of us can stand up here this morning and say, I have perfectly walked on the happy way. I am perfectly sinless. I have perfectly loved and obeyed God's law. And I am perfectly filled with the Holy Spirit. Who of us can say that? I can't. I guarantee you I can't. Can you? You see, the sad truth is that all of us have walked more steps down the wicked way than the happy way, haven't we? We've all walked in the counsel of the wicked. We've all stood in the way of sinners. We've all sat in the seat of scoffers. And the problem with that is that God demands perfection from us. Perfect adherence to his law. And yet we've failed. We've rebelled. Every single one of us. And so for these our sins, we deserve to be blown away. By the judgment of God, like chaff in the wind. That's what we deserve. Because you see, friends, we're the wicked ones. That's who we are. I don't don't know who you thought I was describing or talking about when I was describing the wicked, but I was talking about you. I was describing you. I was talking about me. I was describing me. And so this is our plight, to be driven away like chaff, by the judgment of Almighty God. That's what we deserve. So I guess the only question left to ask is, what hope is there for us? Is there any hope for us? Well, thanks be to God, there is. And the reason there's hope is because of the only way. The only way. And do you know who the only way is? It's Jesus. Because in John 14, 6, Jesus says of himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And you see, that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to be the only way for us to the Father. 
Now, why is that important? Why is it important that we be with the Father? Because that's the happy life. That's the life we were created for. The happy person is the person who has communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the triune God. And back when God created us, we had that. But then we lost it in the fall. We lost it because of our sins. And so as a result, we became the enemies of God. We were cut off from God and we were under the wrath of God because we were on the wicked way. And it's when we were in that state that Jesus came to redeem us. And how did he redeem us? Well, you see, Jesus is the only human being to perfectly live in the happy way. Indeed, Jesus is the happy man that Psalm 1 talks about. Think about it. Only Jesus was perfectly sinless. He was tempted in every way as we are to walk in the counsel of the wicked and stand in the way of sinners and sit in the seat of mockers, but he never did. Not once. And he did that in our place. And only Jesus perfectly delighted in and obeyed God's law. Hebrews 10.7 tells us that when Jesus came into the world, he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And Jesus did. He perfectly loved and obeyed God's law every day of his life. And he did that in our place. And only Jesus was perfectly filled with the Holy Spirit. John 3.34 tells us that Jesus had the Holy Spirit without measure. And since he has the Holy Spirit without measure, he can now give the Holy Spirit to us. And that's exactly what he's done. And only Jesus perfectly meditated on God's law day and night. And we can see this all throughout his life, but just let me give you a few examples. We can see it when Jesus was just a young boy and he got separated from his parents in Jerusalem because he stayed back at the temple. And why did he stay back? So he could discuss God's word with the teachers. We can see it when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness and he used his meditations on Deuteronomy to fight off the temptations of the devil. And we can see it probably most clearly when Jesus is on the cross dying for our sins. Do you remember what he cries out in his moment of deepest agony? He cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's he's quoting Psalm 22 there. And do you know why he's quoting Psalm 22? Because he was processing even his death by meditating on God's word. And he did that in our place. Which leads us to a very important question. Why did Jesus have to die in the first place? I mean, he was the perfect man. He was the Psalm 1 man. So why did he have to die? Well, Psalm 1 shows us why. It shows us that since we are wicked, the only way we can be saved is if someone else is judged in our place. Someone else has to become chaff in our place and blown away by the judgment of God. And you see, that's exactly what happened on the cross. Jesus took our place as the chaff. He took our place as the wicked. And God judged him And God crushed him for our sins. You see, God treated Jesus, the perfectly happy man, 
as a wicked man so that we, the wicked men, could be treated as the happy man. That's the gospel. That's the good news. But you may be wondering to yourself, that's great news, but how does that help me come to love God's law? How does that help me come to obey it and hate my sin? And you know what? If you're asking that question, that's a really good question. And here's the answer. You will never come to the place, brothers and sisters, where you love God's law unless you first see that Jesus fulfilled it perfectly in your place. If you don't see God's law as already fulfilled in Jesus on your behalf, then you will hate God's law because it's going to crush you. And let me show you why I say that. Because there's something I haven't told you yet about Psalm chapter 1. And here it is. Psalm 1 is actually meant to be read with Psalm 2. Because Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 form a single song. There's no chapter break um, in the original text. And if you look at Psalm 2, what you find is that it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus being the Messiah, being the king that God has promised and that Israel was waiting for. And at the very end of Psalm 2, in verse 12, it says, kiss the son, that's Jesus, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Now listen to this, blessed, same word, happy, blessed, Happy are all who take refuge in him. And you see, that's the answer to how you come to love God's law. You take refuge in Jesus the Son. You take refuge in his person and work. You take refuge in the truth that he's perfectly fulfilled God's law in your place. That's how you come to love God's law. And you see, brothers and sisters, that's why Psalm 1 and 2 are the introduction to the whole book. If you don't take refuge in Jesus, in the Messiah, then you'll completely miss the point of the rest of the Psalter because it's all about him. Every psalm points us to Jesus. So I exhort you, even as I exhort myself, make Jesus your constant meditation. Because he's the only way for us to worship the real God in the midst of real life. Indeed, Jesus is the only way we can ever truly be happy. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the gospel. We are so thankful for Jesus because we know that that we have all walked the wicked way. We were conceived into the wicked way. We were born into the wicked way. We, we didn't know any other way but, but to, to, to hate you and to sin against you and to rebel against you and to find our company with the wicked, with the mockers, with the scoffers. And Father, we know that we, for our sins, deserved um, to be blown away like chaff. We deserve to be judged and, and subjected to your wrath for all eternity. And yet, Father, Jesus came and perfectly lived in the happy way in our place. He perfectly loved your law. He perfectly meditated on it. He perfectly obeyed it. And he was and is the tree that was planted by streams of water. And Father, the incredible good news is that 
we are now like little saplings planted next to him. And we get to um, be united with him and experience life with him and grow up in him. And so we pray that Jesus would be our constant meditation. That we would constantly be recalling to ourselves how he is our rock, how he is our refuge. Father, we know that that's the only way for us to come to love your law and to obey it and to hate our sin and to daily put it to death. So Father, we thank you for Jesus and the refuge that we find in him. We pray that you would continue to conform us day by day, moment by moment into his image. We love you and ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.